from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, the uh, American presidential election campaign has evolved or devolved uh, to that that sweet spot. Uh, the uh, vids, you're a racist. You're a bigot. So we're going to really take a pass on it this week. I mean, it's so edifying that uh, really there's no need for me to uh, cast further light on it. B- and and there is more stuff going on, hard to believe, even in August. It's a slow news month. Let's fire everybody until September. Uh, but no, there is stuff. And I want to start off this week, because you got to start off with something. Otherwise, you can't continue. With... Um, a, a little lesson in accountability or the lack thereof. What happens when there isn't accountability? Now, the uh, preface to this is that uh, uh, earlier this week, that is to say, before the weekend, I happened to hear a promotional announcement for a weekend news broadcast on NPR, which was one of the uh, one of the wave of stories. Uh, about the last weekend's horrendous flooding in South Louisiana. By the way, just interpolating here, if you want to know how to, you can help to uh, with the relief of the people who have lost everything in the flooding in South Louisiana, go to the harryshare.com front page. It's got a, a selection of great organizations that will help. Anyway, uh, news stories about that. And comparing that flood with the 2005 flood, in New Orleans. And as I say, it was a promotional announcement for an NPR weekend news show, which called the flooding in New Orleans in 2005, like the flooding in South Louisiana last weekend, a, quote, natural disaster, unquote. I tweeted in response that uh, that was not factually accurate, and a copy of that tweet uh, was uh, sent by someone inside NPR to uh, the news director's there. They can be excused for not knowing because uh, if you check, if those of you who've been with this program all this time know uh, NPR kind of ignored the story both when the two reports came out with the cause of the flooding, university-based investigations of the flooding in New Orleans, both blaming the Army Corps of Engineers for a, a decades-long series of engineering mistakes, miscalculations, and misjudgments. Uh, NPR didn't cover those reports when they came out. It didn't cover a documentary movie that was made about the the people who ran those investigations. Full disclosure, the movie was made by yours truly. Anyway, so they could be excused for not knowing because it won't appear in their archives. So what are they supposed to check? Something else. So the result of that, through a long series of other chains of events, may in fact, lead to this. Four concrete panels in the post-Hurricane Katrina T-wall and levee that protect St. Bernard Parish just east of New Orleans from hurricane storm surges are leaning outward and sinking, according to new inspection reports. Levee officials want the Army Corps of Engineers to find out why and to fix them. This is from the New Orleans Times-Picayune. The four monoliths are built on long steel sheet pilings sitting atop an earthen levee, flanking three sides of St. Bernard Parish's most populous area. The wall is designed in the shape of an inverted inverted T. Much longer piles are sunk diagonally into the ground to help keep the structure in place. 
Left unchecked, the leaning and sinking panels might lead to failure of the flood wall. Something that happened that led to massive flooding, property damage, and loss of life in New Orleans in 2005. Workers with the Lake Bourne Basin Levee District, which oversees the levee system in St. Bernard Parish, first noticed a problem with the four panels during a quarterly inspection in December. The executive director issued a distress report that's uh, being reviewed before being submitted to the Corps of Engineers. Subsequent quarterly inspections in March and June, visual inspection identified the possibility of continued rotational movement of the walls. It's too early to say what the problem is and if it's significant enough to do something about, says the uh, executive director of the levy authority. But it's significant enough to ask the court to figure out what's going on. What the hell is going on? In the words of Donald Trump. Oh, sorry about that. If the shifting between wall panels were to continue for several more years, it caused the rupture of features connecting the walls that assure the water doesn't expand the separation between them and result in a failure. The shifting might be caused by weaker soils than the design of the wall allowed. Weak soils at the bottom could allow surge water at the top to push the wall over. Or there might be a problem with how deep the sheet piles were driven beneath the wall panels. That, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly what happened at the 17th Street Canal in the 1990s. That was one of the most severe of the levee failures in 2005. The distress report included pages from a design documentation report prepared for the Corps at the end of the wall's construction. They say some of the sheet piles were, in fact, driven one to five feet short of what was authorized and that workers did not have a complete record for the last five feet of pile driving for some of the piles. When you don't have accountability, ladies and gentlemen, bad stuff recurs. Hello, welcome to the show. And when you don't have reporting, you don't have accountability.
from New Orleans, Louisiana. Just just by Lake Pontchartrain and just where the uh, the cranes are doing their work for the Army Corps of Engineers, the cranes are flying. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, just a little mopping up exercise. News of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. The human rights organization Amnesty International has been keeping track of and spreading awareness of police violence in Rio, whose victims, this will sound familiar, are mostly black. In a press release before the Olympic opening ceremonies, the organization warned that public security preparations for the event had, quote, unleashed a new wave of violence against favela residents and protesters, unquote. According to Amnesty, in the seven years up to the Games, the city's security forces had already killed more than 2,500 people, a hundred of them, the majority of whom were young black men, in 2015 alone. For comparison's sake, police in the United States killed about 1,000 people in 2015 across the entire country. The numbers Amnesty looked at in Brazil were for Rio alone. That was all before the Games began. Then, according to Amnesty, human rights advocates' worst fears about the impact of the Olympics in Rio came true. This is a report from Vox. Not Vice, not Verge. In a press release after the Olympics, Amnesty said violent police operations killed at least eight people during the two-week event. And the number may rise since information on deaths in two favelas has yet to be confirmed. Quoting Amnesty, people who live in those areas have also reported other human rights violations such as home invasions, direct threats, and physical and verbal aggressions by the police. Unquote. The Olympics, of course, inspired a lot of protests in the month leading up to the Games and during, focused on the way poor residents of Rio's favelas were displaced during the preparation for the event and the way public dollars spent in conjunction with the games left most of them worse off. Vox reported on the efforts to hide the city's poor people from view, including bulldozing entire neighborhoods, forcibly relocating 77,000 citizens, and cutting off bus lines that connected poor and predominantly black neighborhoods from the area of the Olympic Village. Amnesty reported peaceful protesters were, quote, harshly repressed by the police both inside and outside sports arenas during the games, unquote. Well, you saw that on NBC, didn't you? Oh. According to Amnesty, Brazil has the highest homicide rate in the world. 60,000 murders every year. Thousands of these killings are by police who are often not held accountable for them. Well, accountability is over. Oh. And BBC's culinary competition show, The Great British Bake Off, ended up ahead of BBC's coverage of the Olympic Games. The baking competition increased its peak audience to 11.2 million. The the BBC's Olympic coverage only reached 11.1. Says Business Insider, it's remarkable that an annual 10-week bake-off beat out a global sporting competition that only takes place every four years. It's not a competition. You know what it is. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And on a related subject, I am going to read the trades for you now. 
That's called a segue. This from uh, uh, Ad Age, Nightmare in Rio. Well, yeah, I'm going to read it for you. This uh, continues the subject of television ratings for the games. Since the 2016 Summer Olympics wound down, NBC's PR apparatus has been trying to put a brave face on its performance in Rio. But the final ratings data is the stuff of network boss Steve Burke's nightmares. Speaking in mid-June during a symposium, he said his biggest fear heading into the Olympics was that young people simply wouldn't show up. Quote, my worry is that feeling is... You wake up in the morning and you've either hooked America, and you can tell right after the opening ceremony in the first two or three nights, either Americans have fallen in love all over again or they haven't. And my nightmare is we wake up someday and the ratings are down 20%, unquote Steve Burke of NBC, in June. While Burke's nightmare scenario didn't play out to the letter, the final Nielsen numbers showed through the 17 nights of ceremonies and competition, NBC experienced a 15% decline from the 2012 Summer Games. NBC missed its ratings guarantees to advertisers by 17%. Burke was spot on, says AdAge, in his assessment of what set of circumstances would lead to a huge ratings downfall. He said in June, quote, my prediction would be it's because millennials have just not tuned in, that they've been in a Facebook bubble or a Snapchat bubble, and the Olympics have come and they didn't know it was coming, unquote. Burke was correct. A good many millennials failed to show up. A staggering 31% decline in adults 18 to 34 compared to London. This was the oldest skewing Olympics going back to 1960, the year the Olympics were first televised in the United States. Rio underperformed London by every conceivable media metric except perhaps advertising sales dollars. And that's really all it counts. And, oh, sorry, I was me talking. Not the trades. The logistics of packaging the Olympics to a huge national TV audience will only get trickier in the next few years. While people predictably fumed about NBC's tape-delayed coverage of Rio, Burke had characterized the Summer Games as a live Olympics, but it wasn't. Pyeongchang will pose an even greater scheduling dilemma for the Winter Olympics. It lies in a time zone that's 13 hours ahead of the East Coast. In fact, the next three Olympics will be held in Asia. Watch your time zones for details. And also from AdAge, in the good news department, despite long making the case that people don't like video ads with automatic audio, Facebook is testing exactly that. Facebook is testing autoplay video ads that load with the sound turned on as default instead of off as usual. This confirms a report by Mashable of a test going on in Australia. We're running a small test where people can choose whether they want to watch videos with sound on from the start. For people in this test who don't want sound to play, they can switch it off in settings. 
This is one of several tests we're running as we work to improve the video experience for people on Facebook, unquote. The problem for advertisers has been that most of the ads on Facebook have been viewed silently, forcing advertisers to find creative ways to get consumers to turn on the sound or to build ads that work without volume. Hire Buster Keaton. Facebook has been trying to convince advertisers that sound off is just as good as sound on, if only marketers bring the right creative approach. It chided at marketers earlier this year with a report that 42%, sorry, 41% of video ads were meaningless without the sound. That's, we'll need a little interpretation of the word meaningless. It also reported that people hate ads that pop up with the sound on. However, Facebook is now contending with Snapchat as a rival for ad dollars, and Snapchat's video ads are more often played with the sound up, since Snapchat users are accustomed to watching videos of their friends with the sound. And as they click through videos, ads pop up naturally with the sound already playing. That's a message Snapchat has been using to woo advertisers. Many advertisers have been skeptical of the soundless ads anyway. While they've been eager to create for Facebook's massive platform, they prefer their commercials to play with the volume up. Try to find that sound off button in about two years, won't you? Let me know. An exciting new search possibility for you. Because I read the trades for you, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the new Iraq. What a, you know, we've done so much darn good for those people. I, I'm, I'm just looking for the gratitude. And the New York Times this week had a report on exactly another way that we've just rained goodness on them in the form of guns. Since the 9-11 attacks, the United States has handed out a vast but persistently uncountable quantity of military firearms to its many battlefield partners in Afghanistan as well as Iraq. Today, the Pentagon has only a partial idea of how many weapons it issued, much less where these weapons are. The effectively bottomless abundance of black market weapons from American sources is one reason Iraq will never recover from the invasion anytime soon. Ian Overton, a former BBC journalist who's now executive director of Action on Armed Violence, a charity based in London that researches weapons proliferation, made a string of freedom of information requests last year. He and his staff pooled 14 years' worth of Pentagon contract information related to rifles, pistols, your machine guns, and their associated attachments and ammunition for American troops and their partners and proxies. Uh, they covered 412 contracts, the treaty, the uh, uh, International Arms Trade Treaty, which took effect in 2014 and to which the United States is a signatory, is intended to promote transparency and responsible action in the transfer of conventional arms and reduce their diversion to unintended hands, exactly what the United States often failed to do in Iraq as well as Afghanistan. In all, Overton found the Pentagon provided more than 1.45 million firearms to various security forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, Taken together, the weapons were part of a vast and sometimes minimally supervised flow of arms 
from a superpower to armies and militias often compromised by poor training, desertion, corruption, and patterns of human rights abuses. Those happen in patterns now. Hmm? As an example of how haphazard the supervision of the arms di- distribution was, this week, five months after being asked by the New York Times for its own tally of small arms issued to partner forces in those two countries, the Pentagon says it has records for fewer than half the number of firearms in the researchers count. Well, almost half is good, right? This gap between the tallies that the Pentagon said is partly because at first the United States military was trying to stand up two governments that were basically fighting wars. Speed was essential in getting those nations' security forces armed, equipped, and trained to meet these extreme challenges, according to a Pentagon spokesman. As a result, lapses in accountability of some of the weapons transfer, transferred occurred. Pentagon's current practices have improved, said the spokesperson. To ensure the equipment is only used for authorized purposes, its representatives inventory each weapon as it arrives in country and record the distribution of the weapon to the foreign partner nation. What an innovation. Ever heard of barcodes? That takes a long time. But uh, there's some other information here. The data Department of Defense made available was incomplete or laden with contradictions that were not readily reconciled. A 2007 Government Accountability Office report found that more than 100,000 Kalashnikovs and 80,000 pistols brought by the United States for Iraq security forces could not be accounted for. More than one firearm for every member of the entire U.S. military force in Iraq at any time during the war. That was before entire Iraqi divisions simply vanished from the battlefield, as four of them did before the IS seized Mosul and Tikrit a couple years ago, according to an Army budget request last year to buy more firearms for the Iraqi forces to replace what was lost. These spectacular losses were on top of the more gradual drain many veterans of the wars watched firsthand, such scams as Afghan Army recruits showing up for training and then disappearing after they were issued rifles. They were leaving, according to the soldiers who watched them, to sell their weapons. The local units in both Afghanistan and Iraq were often a fraction of their reported strength and dwindled as ever more national police officers or soldiers disappeared or deserted, vanishing with their firearms. The American arming of Syrian rebels by the CIA and the DOD has also been troubled by questions of accountability and outright theft. In a war where the battlefield is thick with jihadists. You don't need accountability when you've got you. Oh, all right then. The new Iraq and the new Syria and the new Afghanistan. And where is the gratitude for all the guns? Thank you for the guns. One card, you know, one stamp. It's not. A, is that asking too much? I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, and I, I answer you. Now, uh, a story you may have missed. Lou Perlman. You may not remember the name. He was uh, a a cultural force about 20 years ago. He was the impresario behind the Backstreet Boys and InSync and other boy bands. But he was serving out a 25-year prison sentence after being convicted of running a half-billion-dollar Ponzi scheme in 2008. He uh, died last week at the age of 62. The... uh, boy band success led to him turning his transcontinental businesses into a sprawling empire in the 1990s, according to Billboard. It was all built on fraud, 
and he was ultimately sued by every act he represented except one. But before and after his fall, rumors were rife about Perlman's relationships with some of the male groups on his roster. We would hear things for sure, said InSync's Lance Bass, talking to The Hollywood Reporter a couple years ago. He would always have young boy limo drivers. Those limo drivers would always be put into different boy bands. Then I'd hear rumors he would molest the boys before they would even get into the groups. I don't know how much of that is true, but to me, where there's smoke, there's fire, unquote Lance Bass of InSync. Perlman denied any inappropriate relations. He had, he died in, in prison. He had been in prison since 2008, If you're curious exactly how long ago that was, back then Larry King was still on CNN. We're back on this very special Larry King Live, which is the last one we're doing before the next presidential debate, which we're having right here tomorrow night. We We taped it a couple of days ago. But more about that the next time I have to promote it in our Los Angeles studio is the great Dewey Gordon. He started his meteoric career at the top with the boy band Boys Are Us. He's become a successful solo act in many states of the Union. Dewey, welcome back. Well, thanks, Mr. King. It's always an honor. And uh, I guess the more I come back here, the more of an honor it is. Jesus, Dewey. Even I don't kiss up to people that much. <laughs> You've been doing what lately? Movies? Concerts? We haven't seen a lot of you on TV. Well, it's strange, Mr. King, because I, uh, I've i been part of a really fun, really groundbreaking reality series called uh, Don't You Know Who I Am? Oh, yeah. It uh, puts a bunch of us from, uh, I, I guess you could say, the 90s <laughs> into real-life situations uh, right now mm-hmm. where we have to try to get something special, you know, special treatment or sure. help or something. Yeah. You know, we uh, uh, I have a hot date at a fancy restaurant. This one actually happened to me on this show. <laughs> and they don't have my reservation, you know, and it's Saturday night, and the only way I can deal with it in the rules of the show is to say to the guy, don't you know who I am? Yeah. And uh, if it works and you get the table, let's say, then you get to stay on the show. It's on Oxygen, too, and, and we're doing well enough. I think we're going to migrate to the mothership next season. The mothership being? Uh, the main Oxygen channel. Yeah. That's mainly a channel for what, women? Yes, sir. Yeah. That's uh, its positioning. But I think with this show and another one that my company's producing, Death Row Women, we're expanding their audience demographic just a little bit. But but that's not why you're here, Dewey. No. you got a new song you just released. Yes, sir. It's a, it's a digital download available on my site, of course, boynomore.com. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be on all the digital sites real soon. It's a tribute song, Larry, because, yeah. well, when you get right down to it, sir, it's, it's the one thing I've never really done. Well, besides having a, a platinum single as a solo artist. <laughs> well, that too. But this is something that's very personal to me. I I just went into the studio this week with my producer, uh, the amazing Monkey C, mm. because, you know, a tragedy has occurred to a giant of this business, Mr. Lou Perlman. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that, uh, what? <laughs> well, he was only the man, Larry, who invented the boy band, yeah. you know, period, paragraph, new page. Basically, he said to... All the good-looking young guys with decent voices and some dance moves. Hey, I can make you bigger than Madonna. And uh, now he's fallen on hard times. Apparently he's been involved in some dealings that I don't really understand, you know, financial stuff that artists never really get into. But, Larry, none of the other ex-boy band boys have stood up and spoken up or sung up 
for Lou. And so, as I say, Monkey C and I just went into the studio. And, uh, you know, some magic happens as it does when your heart's really into it. And, you know, hey, I can make a million with this or two bucks. I don't really care. It's it's just a way of saying thank you, Lou Pearlman. Uh, uh, Dewey, was Boys R Us one of his bands that you, you, you knew him personally? No, sir. Our own uh, Sven Galli, uh, Mr. Bert Lipscheitz, was... Uh, Kind of an apprentice or a mentor of Lou's. You know, he had access to all of Lou's legal forms and everything. Yeah. And, you know, some days uh, when we'd been in the bus and Bert would come back to our section, he'd uh, he'd talk a little bit about his dream, which was being bought out by Lou. Um, it never happened, which is part of Bert's sadness. But, you know, when when Lou gets out of jail, Larry, I'll still be a relatively young man and... and, and and you'd, you'd like to work with him then? Oh, well, who can know the future? Yeah. But in the meantime, I, I wanted to be one boy band member who, who who didn't forget where it all started. Okay, it's called He Brung the Noise. He Brung the Noise. Hmm. It, 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 he Brung the Noise. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a typo in a prompter. It looks like noisy. <laughs> it's not a typo, Larry. That's, that's urban. Yeah. Well, then call me suburban. Dewey Gordon's new song, He Brung the Noise. You're hearing it here first. I never worked for you, although I wanted to. Lou, you had the golden key, the laces for the golden shoe. Lou, the boys in your attic belong to. Did you love them too much, or did you just have accounting problems? Lou, you brought the boys sweet blue. You brought the noise, yeah, you. You brought the boys, oh, you. You brought the noise, 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 what you'd like to do, Lou, you had the fairy dust, and so it grew and grew, Lou, dead men have no lawyers, there's no magic in rules, I'll be in your band, and solve your accounting problems, Lou, you brought the boys over. time for the whole thing. I do too, Mr. King. But they're just going to have to go to what? Your website? Uh, my website or, you know, maybe uh, CNN's. Uh, yeah, you don't want to be on our website too crowded. <laughs> the great Dewey Gordon is much of a classic as the corn riot Nate and Al's. we got to end early tonight to make way for this announcement. From Los Angeles, good night. A new kind of debate for a new kind of debate season. The Larry King Democratic Debate. Featuring questions taken exclusively from Larry King's columns. Is there any better summer fruit than the peach, Senator Obama? Larry, I'm going to have to say the the Kelsey Plum. That's the green one, right? It is. Senator Clinton, your answer. The Pluot, Larry. It's half plum and half apricot. The Larry King Democratic Debate, tomorrow night on CNN. The first name in last words. And now, ladies and gentlemen, back in 
2016. Just in time for news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Increased sea temperatures. Yes, I put a pause in there just to attract your attention. Increased sea temperatures could dramatically enhance and accelerate radiation-induced DNA effects in marine invertebrates, according to a new study. Led by Plymouth University, research for the first time explored the impact of rising temperatures coupled with the presence of tritium. Well, there's none of that in the water. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the environmentally relevant radionuclide that you find leaking from nuclear power plants all over the place. Uh, the effects on marine mussels. Studies carried out under laboratory conditions demonstrated that at radiation dose rates considerably below the recommended international guidelines, induced DNA strand breaks oops, appeared earlier at higher temperatures compared to lower temperatures. So the warmer the water, the more DNA damage from tritium in the water. And but, you know, the water's not warming. Oh, and the treaty. Oh, a new federal report warns that warns that global warming will degrade the nesting areas in the northwestern Hawaiian islands and threaten many sea turtles, seabirds and endangered Hawaiian monk seals. Those aren't monks, but seals. The assessment for the now I'm going to read a long Hawaiian name for you. Papa Hanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. Thank you. Maintains that global warming and its associated problems will likely afflict afflict low-lying islands and also harm endangered birds such as the Laysan duck and Laysan finch. We're hoping this report will reach policymakers and raise awareness with the public, said the deputy superintendent for research at the monument. Climate change is real, he said. This is really a global problem. He said many of the places where seabirds and other animals live in the northwestern Hawaiian islands only rise one to two feet above sea level. Some are no higher than a sandbar. The uh, president has announced he's expanding the monument to an area about twice the size of Texas. The expansion said the White House could provide protection for more than 7,000 marine species, but the study conducted by the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries looked at the likelihood of coastal erosion due to global warming for the next 50 to 100 years. The whole Hawaiian monk seal population totals 1,100 their, their population has been increasing, resulting in some conflict between them and some people. Some people. News of the warm. Ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now news of Athak. Norway. Little Norway. Has published the first comprehensive evaluation of one country's contribution to the international intervention in Afghanistan. Conducted by a government-appointed commission. Most commissioners were independent researchers. It's known as the Godal Report. It's a candid and sharp assessment, says a, a member of the Afghan Analysts Network Advisory Board. It finds that, the on, that only the domestic goal of the mission was fully achieved. That was to prove Norway a trustworthy ally of the U.S. and NATO. It was far less successful in its Afghan goals you know, preventing Afghanistan from lapsing back into being a haven of international terrorism and contributing to state-building. The report includes the first comprehensive account of Norway's early talking to the Taliban and its role 
in peace diplomacy, as well as important insights into applying the laws of war. The report was published in 2016. They're still awaiting a full English translation. The results were meager. Uh, One explanation for the limited outcome is the partly conflicting goals. Military considerations had a decisive influence on state building and development assistance, leading to a preference for short-term objectives which benefited local power structures connected with abuse and corruption. The cost was high. First for the Afghan people, the total number of Afghans killed during the intervention is estimated at, quote, maybe over 90,000, unquote, but also for Norway. Don't cry for Norway. Meanwhile, what is going on over there right now? Taliban insurgents have intensified attacks near the northern Afghan city of Kunduz, cutting off main roads to adjacent provinces. Senior Afghan military officials have rushed to Kunduz to take charge of the fighting. This comes days after a major Taliban push into Baglan province, just south of Kunduz, and several weeks after Taliban forces began closing in on Lashkar Gah in Helmand province, another strategic city. Uh, The Taliban did take over Kunduz uh, as recently as last October and were forced out in heavy fighting. U.S. forces are not authorized to participate in direct ground combat in Afghanistan, but they help Afghan forces prevent strategic defeat. So uh, 100 extra U.S. troops have been flown in to provide protection in Lashkar Gah. While eager to help save Kunduz, U.S. military officials are reportedly anxious to avoid the kind of errors, says the Washington Post, that led to the fatal U.S. airstrike on the Doctors Without Borders hospital last year. U.S. and Afghan officials vowed Taliban fighters would not be permitted to repeat that humiliating takeover of Kunduz, but provincial officials say the insurgents had launched a multi-pronged attack from three sides of the city. Analysts say Kunduz would be an important strategic prize the Taliban. This is uh, especially destabilizing for the Afghan government facing strong public criticism and a crisis of legitimacy amid growing disputes between its two top leaders, President Ghani and um, the guy who virtually tied him in the election, Abdullah Abdullah, who was given a new post of uh, chief executive, which is like prime minister. The discord between Ghani and Abdullah can demoralize the army and security forces in general said a retired Afghan army official. General, the Taliban could not have chosen a better time for their attacks, he said, than now. That's what it looks like from there to here. Now, what does it look like right over there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, where the pledge drive never ends. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul. The city's so nice, they named it. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Pluck and Schmuck, the Hanging On Brothers. Here's Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the aid of Afghan Express, when you absolutely have to have it eventually. <laughs> well, today, my younger brother, mm. we will return after a brief vacation. What did you do while you were gone? Well, the security situation being what it is, mm. the plan for a fishing trip in the country had to be uh, put in, on the shelf. Uh, 
along with the fish. <laughs> so, so I just stayed home and sold a couple of Camrys to visiting reporters. Mm, that's very impressive. What, did I sold some Camrys? No, that reporters are still visiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, surely one visited you to write that admiring feature story in the New York Times magazine. <laughs> yes, well, the PR man, my cousin Jimmy Karzai, mm. set that uh, whole thing up. Good pictures, don't you think? The green robe never looked greener. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but it does make me wonder why we decide to take vacations during the fighting season. Oh, makes perfect sense to me. Oh, why is that, dear brother? That's when the hotels offer the best discounts. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them pay you to stay there. <laughs> of course. It's cheaper than hiring good security guards. <laughs> Hello, you're on cars, I talk. Hello, this is Abdullah Abdullah, long-time power sharer, first-time caller. Oh, hello, hello, Abdullah Abdullah. How are you? How are you? That's enough, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, my friend, to what do we owe the pleasure of your phoning in to us? Aside from the fact that your partner, President Hani, probably won't take your call. <laughs> uh, it was a minor technical problem. Oh. His phone wasn't programmed to take calls from equals. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, Hamid, mm -hmm. I'm uh, calling because I couldn't get an appointment to visit you in person. Oh, that's understandable, Double A. Since that story appeared, my brother has been the hottest ticket in town since Kanye West entertained the troops. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. It still could. <laughs> <laughs> so do I gather, dear Abdullah, uh -huh. that your newly created role as chief executive is not turning out to be all it was advertised to be? Let me put it this way, Hamid. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the title of chief executive, mm -hmm. the powers of prime minister, mm -hmm. and the office of Pizza Hut franchisee. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have more room in the Toyota Land Cruiser. Will you stop selling? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as I read the situation, Abdullah... Uh, excuse me, uh, are you calling him by his first name or his last name? Yes. <laughs> As I read the situation, uh -huh. with the new intensity of fighting against the insurgency, mm -hmm. this should be the moment when President Hani and you are working hand in glove. Or at least hand in pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, a, a cogent assessment of the situation. Unfortunately, President Hani sees me not so much as a colleague, but more as an enemy, mm. a, a sort of uh, Taliban light. Mm. The Taliban light, by the way, is standard equipment on some of the new tundras. No more selling! <laughs> it's all right. Uh, so, my dear caller, uh -huh. do you have a question for us since we are authority figures in exile at home? <laughs> I, I do indeed, Hamid. Uh. I would have asked you this in my private visit, had I been able to obtain one, but uh -huh. yes, is there any way you can make your services available to heal the rift between me and my supposed partner in leading this supposed government? Hmm, my friend, I think my role at the moment is limited to remaining on the sidelines as a sympathetic, interested observer. Meaning you can't ride to the rescue if you are part of the mess. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> well, I understand, and I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but I'm grateful, too. 
grateful. Oh, yes, that I didn't have to dress up for the personal visit. Mm. As it happens, I work in my shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. <laughs> Too much information. What about the infighting between him and President Hani? No, about the shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to drink an extra pomegranate martini to get that image out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's tonight's excuse. <laughs> Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. <laughs> Hello, I'm General Nicholson, long-time commander of Operation Resolute Sport, first-time caller. Wow, we're getting a higher level of caller today. Mm -hmm. Must be because we're offering a higher level of tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> So, General, yes, you must have your hands pretty full right about now. Uh, no, sir, I'm on speakerphone. I, I think my brother meant with the war and everything. Uh, right, yes, sir. Of course, we're in the heart of uh, fighting season right now. As you can imagine, that poses a, an additional challenge to our operation. Pardon me, General, but I thought the fighting was the challenge to the operation. Yes, sir. In a very real sense, it is, sir. Well, there's no sense like a real sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Can't argue with you there. General, we're running short on time. The new version of Hindu Kush Companion is coming on next. Mm. So if you have a question... Well, sir, I, I was kind of wondering why that show was still on the air. But uh, <laughs> no, sir, the, the reason I was calling was, mm -hmm. as you know, sir, we're back engaged in Kunduz. Mm -hmm. An area we cleared of enemy control just about ten months ago. Oh, they'd get better clearing from Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. It's a good one, sir. <laughs> and, of course, as uh, we add some of our personnel to the mission, uh, we find ourselves having to transport the personnel back into the city proper to uh, bolster its defenses. Mm, it sounds like a plan. Uh, it just happens that uh, as we were reacquainting ourselves with the geography of the Kunduz area, mm -hmm. It uh, turns out our maps seem to have uh, gone missing. I'm just wondering if uh, if you know, as uh, you drive the airport road north, mm -hmm. uh, it's a right or a left to get into the city center? Uh, as I remember, it's a right. Uh, but, right. Uh, General, mm -hmm. Google Maps could confirm that in a heartbeat. Yes, sir. Uh, our Internet is down and our phones are still working, so... That's why I call. Well, if you stay on the line for another hour and give at least ten Afghans, the Kabul Starbucks will match your pledge. The offer doesn't apply if the Starbucks has been bombed. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, sir, we have a staff meeting coming up, so I do have to input your information into the uh, staff process. Oh, that sounds painful. <laughs> Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Afghan Chamber of Commerce reminding you that the business of Afghanistan is to make something and sell something and take the money and invest it in something else. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Mahmoud. I'm Hamid. Join us again next time for another non-rerun edition of Cars I Talk. Or join us when it gets rerun. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. Dança o samba, só dança o samba Vai, 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 vai Só dança o samba, só dança o samba Vai Só dança o samba, só dança o samba Vai, 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 vai Só dança o samba, só dança o samba Vai Já dancei o twist até demais 
Mas não sei, me cansei do calypso ao tchá tchá tchá. Só danço samba, só danço samba. Vai, 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 vai. Só danço samba, só danço samba. Vai. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. U.S. Soccer has announced that Hope Solo has been suspended from the team for six months following the comments she made calling Sweden's performance in the quarterfinal match in the Olympics. Cowardly. I apologize for disappointing my teammates, coaches, and the federation who've always supported me. Solo wrote, I think it's best for me to take a break, decompress from the stress of the last several months and come back mentally and physically ready to positively contribute to the team. So right now she'll be playing soccer solo. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bette Midler is backtracking after a joke about Caitlyn Jenner was called out for being transphobic. Now that her series I Am Kate has been canceled, she tweeted, will she go back to being Bruce? Do I smell a re-wedding? Midler tweeted. Twitter erupted. Us- users accused Midler of making a transphobic joke. After the backlash... Midler deleted the tweet, or detweeted the delete, and apologized for the joke. Dear friends, whom I have always supported, sorry, last tweet offended, and idle musing, I seem to have misread the temper of the Times. Yes, the Times has a temper now, too. That was a, a Times temper. 
Good Morning America co-anchor Amy Robach has apologized for saying colored people on Monday's broadcast of the program during a segment of Done Diversity in Hollywood. After the broadcast, she released a statement meaning saying she had meant to say people of color. She called the incident a mistake and not at all a reflection of how I speak or feel in my everyday life. No reaction yet from the NAAPC. McDonald's is recalling millions of fitness wristbands that it bundled with Happy Meals after customers complained of skin irritation and burns. You want everything? The fast food chain sold more than 32 million meal boxes containing the plastic Step It bands across North America. The Consumer Product Safety Commission urged customers to immediately take the recalled wristbands from children. McDonald's apologized to our customers who were impacted and for the inconvenience this recall has caused. Nothing is more important to us than the safety and well-being of our customers. Unless they eat the food. Oh, no, she didn't say that. James Feigen, one of the four U.S. swimmers involved in that notorious gas station incident, has now apologized for his role in fabricating the story. In a statement posted to his lawyer's website, Feigen apologized to Rio de Janeiro, the Olympic Games, and his USA teammates. Always apologize on your lawyer's website, ladies and gentlemen. It's the right thing to do. Maine's shoot from the lip Governor Paul LePage had to apologize again this Friday, this time for leaving a vile voicemail during which he challenged a lawmaker to, quote, prove I'm a racist. You little son of a B ex socialist expletive, he told a representative in a voicemail. You, I need you to just friggin' I want you to record this and make it public because I am after you. He called the representative a snot-nosed runt and said he could wish he could duel. The representative in question said he had never called the page a racist. The page has apologized. And... Joshua Harris, the former lead pastor of Covenant Life Church, is now apologizing to Christians he hurt when he advised against dating in his best-selling 1997 book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, calling it a huge mistake. It's like, well, crap, is the biggest thing I've done in my life really this huge mistake, asked Harris, who stepped down as lead pastor last year. He argued that traditional dating is a training ground for divorce. It's a gateway drug, if you ask me. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Well, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan around the f world to the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the East Coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. On the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet. At two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it. HarryShare.com and KCSN.org. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. And available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org. And to be just like, fill in your own simile here. 
if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show. Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Wear them when next time you hear the guys. HarryShearer.com. And me, I'm on the Twitter, at TheHarryShearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from New Orleans. New Orleans.